Awesome. Hope everybody's doing all right tonight. It's always a good time of uh, worship when we get to participate in the Lord's Supper together. Um, I wanted to start off um, the sermon tonight just confessing how annoying I can be as a husband to you. I mean, not to you, but like to my wife. Um, so one of the most annoying things that I do to Allie is, um, and I'm working on it, is when um, she'll like ask me a question or say something to me and I don't respond immediately because I'm thinking about what she said or I'm thinking how I should respond, right? But have you ever been talking to somebody and you feel like they're not listening or they just are completely ignoring you, <laughs> right? A lot of guys are guilty of this if we're willing to admit it. Um, I'll say that to say, every time that we open God's word, we are called to respond, right? The, the, the word is very clear, right? God's word provokes a response out of us. Um, we are supposed to respond. Either we respond in rejecting or we respond in receiving, whatever that word is. Uh, and I wanted to say up front, like the ultimate goal of tonight is that we would leave this place worshiping the Lord more than when we walked in. That's the ultimate goal. That's the goal of this sermon. That should be the goal of every sermon is, is worship. Um, it, that, because that's what we were created to do, right? Like um, you're going you're gonna to have some teaching in a sermon, but most of the time it's going to be preaching. Uh, and I like to say like you can teach without preaching, but you can't preach without teaching. There is a difference between teaching and preaching, Right, so tonight we're going to have some, some teaching because you're going to learn some new things, um, I hope. Uh, I learned a lot over the past two weeks just from studying this passage. But um, it, unlike teaching, preaching um, leads to worship or it should lead to worship. When, when someone's teaching you something, you walk away with some new information and you have some new knowledge. Um, but the point of preaching is not new information but transformation. The point of preaching is worship, that we would leave with our lives transformed and worshiping the Lord with a, a greater knowledge of who he is and of who we are in light of who he is and that we would respond in worship to him. And so that's the goal, right, of, of any Christ-centered sermon should be Christ-exalting worship, right? Um, and so with that being said, turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 is... Uh, um, we're going to be, I know this is like the, the fourth sermon, I think, like in this chapter. We're wrapping up the chapter tonight, uh, and so we're going to finish it out. Uh, last week, Brody preached 12 through 17. Tonight, we're going to be in verses 18 through 29. There's a lot in here. Um, I'm glad that um, I started at like 525, so we can go to like 625, something like that. Is that right? Usually, church ends at 630. Okay, cool. Um, sweet. Zach said yes. Just kidding. Um, while you're turning there, if you haven't already gotten there, I wanted to, um, to, to kind of describe the scene that the author is calling his audience to remember. Um, we're going to read a scene in this chapter, and the, and the, the author is, is, is saying, hey, remember this, and this is what the scene is. Uh, by describing the scene to you, I'm going to read God's word. We're going to read a ton of scripture tonight, okay? So this is Exodus chapter 19, and this is right after um, the, the, the Israelites have been delivered out of, 
out of slavery, walked through the wilderness, and God's about to give them the law. And this is what it says. On the morning of the third day, there were thunder and lightning and the thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now we know when Moses went up, God spoke to him and delivered the law to him. And so God lays out the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. You can go read that. We're not going to read all of chapter 20, but I wanted to read a few verses after God delivers the law. This is what it says in Exodus 20, 18 through 21. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So hopefully that gives you a greater picture, uh, a little bit better context to understand what we're about to read in these remaining verses in chapter 12. The first part of this passage can be broken up into two parts. So verses 18 through 21 is going to be the description of Mount Sinai. And verses 22 through 24 is going to be the description of Mount Zion. I hope this is helpful for you. It helped me to understand this passage. Um, and so let's look at it together. Verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, a storm, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So in the, in the presence of God's power, in, in, in the presence of his awesome holiness and glory, the people are absolutely terrified, which they should be, right? Why? Why should the people be scared? Why should they not touch the mountain? Well, because they're in the presence of the, the reality of God. In the presence of God, the realest of reals, the holiness of God, and they see their sin in the presence of his holiness. The truth is, we are unholy. God is holy. We are on earth. God is in heaven. You remember it from the Exodus passage when he said he came down? He had to come down. There's a significant difference between God and man. There's a separation between a holy God and unholy people because our sin leads to death. Well, God's word and his ways lead to life. We need, we need clearly a mediator. Right? The people begged. They were like, God, don't, don't let him talk to us anymore. Moses, you go. We'll, we'll listen. We'll, we'll talk to you. We'll listen to you, but don't don't let God speak to us. We'll be undone. We need a mediator because we can't keep the law. We're guilty. We, we, we've broken all ten commandments that were given. 
we are unclean. Right? We live amongst a people of uncleanness. We see this in our culture everywhere, right? Um, a few weeks ago, Allie and I got the privilege to go down to New Orleans to um, the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting. Um, both of us have never been down there before. And, uh, and so we were told, hey, you need to go to the French Quarter and to Bourbon Street. Um, and so the historical architecture in that city is absolutely amazing. And the food is delicious, right? We had some good meals. It was awesome. Um, but the debauchery was blatant and very evident. And when I say debauchery, I mean, you don't know what that means. Um, the city literally smelled like puke and pee and drugs and trash. It just smelled like garbage, right? Like, like it was obvious it was just an unclean place, right? And, and there was open displays of darkness everywhere, like, like blatant witchcraft, uh, sorcery, um, drug use, and nudity just everywhere, right? I mean, it was, to be honest, it was, it was repulsive to the eyes. Um, but as we thought about it, it we, we, we think this is only the symptoms of what's going on inside of our hearts. It's only the symptoms of sin that we're seeing of what's going on inside of the human heart apart from Christ. If we don't have a relationship with Christ, right? The, the blindness, the blatant pride in sin was shocking until I realized and remembered I too was just like this, apart from the Lord. Apart from him opening my eyes to the beauty of the gospel and the horror of my own sin, I would never have changed. I couldn't change by myself. My sin was so ugly. I remember how repulsive I was. I remember how gross I was apart from Christ until he saved me. He saved me back in 2005 when I was a senior in high school. Um, I, when I was, a, I was a teenager, I was introduced to Christian music. I didn't really listen to Christian music. Um, I was a confused kid. I, I, I listened to a mixture of gangster rap and country. Those mix well. I was, I was confused. Um, but then I got introduced to uh, Todd Agnew. Anybody ever heard of Todd Agnew? Maybe not. Look at this album cover. Is that not, does that not scream 2000s, you know? I mean, no shoes on. Like, that just, man, it's such a good album. Um, in this album, Todd has a song. One of my favorite songs as a new believer, having not read through the Bible, was entitled Isaiah 6. And I'll never rem forget hearing that song for the very first time and that song leading me to go read Isaiah and, and when I got to Isaiah 6, I was like, oh, this is what he wrote. Like this, he was just singing the Bible, which is awesome. There's no better lyrics. And so in Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah is telling this vision of what the Lord showed him. And this is what it says. This is God's word from Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. 
Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim, who were angels, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. What an incredible picture of God's holiness, his unapproachable holiness, which brings a proper reaction from Isaiah, right? A a reaction of, of fear and woe is me. But he's in the presence of Yahweh, of, of, of the Lord, and he sees him, and he sees the, the worship of the angels, right? And, and he's seeing that they are worshiping the Lord, and they never stop singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And then in Todd's song, he goes on after singing this refrain over and over again to say, he's glorious, He's glorious, you're glorious, you're glorious, oh glorious. Because the proper response to a holy God is worship. Let's move on to verses 22 through 24, or we're never going to get done. We need to pay attention to the difference between verses 18 and 21 and 22 through 24 here. And to do that, um, I created this really rough chart. Hopefully, it will help you see the difference between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Um, We've already seen um, that, hey, the author is saying, you haven't come to this mountain. This is not what you've come to. You remember that, but this isn't what you've come to. You've come to this, which is way better. So focus on this. Listen to this. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings. Like, what a party. Like, they're ne- they never stop worshiping, and he's inviting us in. And to the assembly of the firstborn, the church, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Remember, this is the mountain you've come to, right? And once again, he's saying, hey, look at the angels. What's their purpose? Messengers, yes. Worship, yes. Worshiping the Lord. Helping us to recall, I think the author is doing this. He's, he's wrapping up. We know that the next chapter is the last one, right? But he's, he's helping us recall back to chapter one. With, with the two, two phrases, bringing up angels again, but saying firstborn in verse 23. What's that, right? In verse 6 of chapter 1, he says this. When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Who's he talking about? Jesus, right? 
And I know, I don't know about you, but I haven't done a lot of studying up on Zion <laughs> until this passage. But I did a little word study um, to help us understand Zion over the past two weeks. Zion occurs over 150 times in the Bible, so it's super important. Right? The word literally means fortification. It, it describes both the city of David and the city of God. In Psalm 87, it says, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. So in the Old Testament, Zion is used as the name of the city of Jerusalem or the land of Judah. Mount Zion is the hill on which David built a citadel. So Zion is, is also a reference to the nation of, of Israel as a whole. Theologically and spiritually speaking, Zion refers to the people of God as a whole. So God's spiritual kingdom, the heavenly Jerusalem, if you will, as verse 22 states. So there's a massive difference between the city of man in the city of God, right? In, in the city of man, there's self-worship. It's self-centered. In the city of God, God is central, and we worship the Lord. It's God-centered. In 1 Peter 2.6, Peter quotes the scriptures referring to Jesus as our cornerstone in Zion. Before I am laying a, behold, he says, I am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Jesus is the cornerstone, right? Jesus is the one that the church is built on. Jesus is the foundation that we should build our lives on, what we just got done singing about. As Hebrews 12, 24 says, Jesus is not only the cornerstone or the foundation, but the mediator. He's a mediator of a new covenant. His blood, speaking a better word than the blood of Abel. In his commentary, Richard Phillips said this, that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant in his blood, one who takes away our fear, strips away the clouds of fury, and opens wide the gate to paradise for all who would come in faith. We remember the point of the letter to the Hebrews, and we see what this passage is teaching us, what folly it would be for us to go from this mediator, Jesus, to the old mediator, Moses, from this mountain of grace to the old mountain of fear and darkness that was Sinai. We shouldn't go back. Don't go back to that. We can't miss the emphasis in verse 24 on blood. Right? It says, the blood is speaking Abel's blood and Jesus' blood. But what's, what is it saying? What's the blood saying? You remember, if you recall, Abel from our study through Genesis. Abel was killed by his brother Cain in Genesis chapter 4. Abel was the first martyr. Abel's blood soaked the earth and cried out to God for vengeance and for justice. But Jesus' blood speaks not vengeance, but forgiveness for God's children. As some call him Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, he preached an entire passage, an, enti an entire sermon on just this verse. Hebrews 12, 24, on August 29th, 1858, he said this, the blood of Christ speaketh better things than that of Abel, for Abel's blood said revenge, revenge, and made the sword of God start from its scabbard. But Christ's blood cried, mercy, and sent the sword back again and bid it sleep forever. Blood hath a voice to pierce the skies. Revenge, the blood of Abel cries. But the rich blood of Jesus slain speaks peace 
as loud from every vein. What a contrast right, between the blood of Abel and the blood of Jesus. Jesus' blood truly speaks a better word, a louder word, a clearer word. Do you hear what it's saying today? His blood is still speaking today, and it says life. It says love. It says forgiveness. It says grace. It says mercy. It says pardon. It says adoption. It says security. It says eternal life. You remember Hebrews 9. He entered once for all into the holy place not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. His blood speaks salvation, eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh outwardly, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience inwardly from dead works to serve the living God? We've been made alive to worship. We were created to worship. We were created by him and for him to worship him. We were created to worship and serve the living God in the city of God because of the Son of God. In Hebrews 10, he can't stop talking about the blood. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. I think in Mount Sinai it said, don't draw near, right? Don't come near, unapproachable. You can't touch me. What does Jesus say? Come near, touch me. I'm here, I'm with you. So we could draw near with confidence, full assurance, Why? Because our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience with his blood. We don't have to fear coming to the Lord anymore because we've been covered by the purifying, cleansing blood of Christ Jesus. So we don't have to dread the Lord. But through faith, because we have a mediator, because Christ is enthroned now and ever in interceding for us, we can come to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through the Son, right? What a contrast. Do you see what the author's doing, right? In verses 18 to 21, he's saying, don't go there. That's not where we are. In verses 22 to 24, he says, here's where we are. Here's what God's brought us to. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let's look at the remaining verses, and let's pay attention. We're going to see the final warning in this letter. In these final verses, verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So in verse 25, we're reminded that God is speaking. That, sound, that might sound like, well, that's not a big deal. That's a huge deal. We, we, we believe in a God who speaks. We don't believe in a God made out of wood or, or metal. We don't believe 
in a God who is dead, who is inactive, who is uninvolved. We believe in a God who speaks. Idols do not speak. They are not real. We believe in a God who speaks because he's God alone. And so this is saying, don't, don't refuse him. He's speaking. Don't ignore him. Don't not respond. Don't refuse Jesus who's speaking now. A better word, a word of life to you. Don't refuse the gospel message that he's proclaiming. We can't escape God. We can't escape from his warnings. May we not reject him as he's speaking. And just we, in case we forgot, because we were forgetful people, the five warnings in Hebrews are these from chapter 2. Don't drift away. We're prone to leave. We're prone to wonder. We're prone to drift. Don't drift away. And in chapter 3, he said, don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts against the Lord. And then in chapter 5, don't fall away. And in chapter 10, don't shrink back. And here, don't refuse God in chapter 12. When someone refuses to accept the gospel message, they are not rejecting man. They are rejecting God. Me and a group of guys I meet with on Wednesday morning recently um, challenged each other to, to memorize 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. And in that passage, the Lord is calling us to remember his will for our lives and sanctification. And in that verse, he says, for God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. So if we refuse to listen to the word of God, we refuse to listen to Jesus. We reject the word of God. We aren't rejecting man but God. So if you share the gospel with somebody and they say no or get out of my face or make fun of you or laugh, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting God and they're rejecting his word. As God promised in verses 26 to 27, he will refine everything that has been made. In Hebrews 27, he's quoting the prophet Haggai in chapter 2, which says this, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. In verse 25, we're reminded of God speaking to us, which I think we should remember back once again to the first chapter. How does this entire letter start? Long ago, and many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us, how? By his son. What was the whole point, this whole series, walking through this book? Jesus is better. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is superior. The gospel message is greater. His blood speaks a better word. The gospel is greater than anything that has ever been spoken just think about this. You can't speak any greater words to any other human being than the words of the gospel. That's astonishing. There's nothing you can say that's better than the word of truth, the word of God, 
sharing the scriptures with another human being. For their ears to hear the words of God. That's why we put so much emphasis on the Bible. That's why we put so much like resources and time and investment and money into the Word of God and getting the Word of God to other people in other languages and other places all around the world. That's why we focus so much on the Scriptures. That's why we read the Scriptures out loud together. That's why we're to meditate on the Scriptures. That's why we, the, the preaching of the Word of God is central to everything that we do. That's why every day you should get up and you should worship the Lord and meet with Him. Do we really believe do we really believe what Jesus said, that man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God? Do we believe it? And also because his word is the only thing that will remain. Everything else will be shaken. Everything else will fall away. The grass withered, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The old covenant what was, what was made, what was put in place will be shaken and done away with because it was temporary. Everything will pass away. Everything is fleeting. Everything we see and touch and taste is fleeting except for his kingdom and his word. It will not pass away. Jesus himself said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And at one point in time, think about this. At one point in time, the greatest world power was the Roman Empire, right? Which, if you would have asked them at that time, they would have said, there's nothing greater. It's unmatched. It's power. It's might. It's beauty. It's expanse. It's going to last forever. It's never going to go away. It's going to squash Christianity. How'd that work out for the Romans? not great, right? We, there is no more a Roman empire, but what still remains is the kingdom of Christ that's still standing. It's still strong. It's sure. It will not be shaken. Rome couldn't outlast Christianity, right? No kingdom or empire or government can outlast the kingdom of God. Not one that's why we don't put our hope and trust in government or kings because there's only one who was not made. Jesus was not made. Jesus, who cannot be shaken. Let's look at our last two verses. Verses 28 and 29. It says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. When I read that verse, I couldn't help but think about Romans 12. Right? In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship, or as the NIV says, like your, your acceptance of worship. Like we should Offer ourselves to God as an acceptable offering because of his mercy, because of his grace, because of everything he's already shared. And I think we can take six points of application from just verses 28 and 29. Six points of application, really quick. 
I'm going to throw these up on the screen, and we're going to talk about a few other things. I'm going to throw them back up on the screen so you can write them down. Number one, we should be grateful. We should be grateful for the gift of God. Number two, we should receive the kingdom of God by grace through faith in Jesus. Number three, this, the gospel can't be shaken. Remember, the gospel is permanent. It can't be shaken. It's the only thing that will endure. It's not going anywhere. Nobody's going to get rid of it. People can try to burn the Bible. People can try to tell people to shut up and stop talking about Jesus. It's not going anywhere because the Lord isn't going anywhere. And so we should worship him. Worship the Lord. Fear the Lord in reverence and awe and acknowledge that God is a consuming fire or we will be undone. Now, some people might say, and you might be curious, you may be wondering, how can you say that God is loving, that God is merciful, and that he's also an all-consuming fire? Because we know that fire utterly destroys. Right, I mean, just over the past few years, we've seen forest fires, right, just come wipe through acres and acres of land, utterly destroys everything in its path. God's holiness is the reason for him being an all-consuming fire. It burns up anything that is unholy. Pastor Phillips says this, the imagery of God as a raging fire speaks of his holiness and the reverent fear with which we must always treat him. God can never be taken lightly. Even when the threat of his wrath has been removed by the cross of Christ, he himself is not a tame God. He's always dangerous. We don't play with fire. Right? We teach kids that. We don't play with fire because you can get burned. We, we can't play with God. It's unwise to play games with God. He doesn't play games. We can't stand his holiness. We'll be undone. But when you're clothed in the holiness of Christ, you're safe. And that's the beauty of the gospel. God provided the righteousness that we needed, the holiness that was not ours. We couldn't come to him. We had to stay away. Jesus came to us so that we could get to him. And when we're clothed in his righteousness, when Christ is our cornerstone, we have a relationship with him and we don't have to be afraid because of this consuming fire, because of the wrath of God is covered up by the purifying, cleansing blood of Christ. That doesn't mean we don't still tremble in reverence and awe of his holiness and be thankful proclaimers of his holiness right and that's the main point I feel like we could take away from this passage that the terrifying fear is turned into awesome worship which leads us to witnessing this terrifying fear that we once had of God and of his holiness should turn us to awesome worship to proclaim the gospel message to those in our path. You remember the vision Isaiah got in chapter 6? What was his, his response? He said, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm unclean. I live amongst the people who are unclean. We've seen the king of righteousness, the king of holiness. But God was merciful and gracious and took away his guilt. He said, your sins atoned for. And what was his response? I didn't read it earlier. One verse, 
A lot of you know it. Isaiah 6, 8. He says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah quickly jumps up and says, Send me. Here I am. Send me. I'll go and proclaim your word to the people. Because we see terrifying fear turn into awesome worship, which leads to witnessing to others. Jesus is our coal. He's our atonement. He is what cleanses us from all sin. He's what makes us useful to the Lord. So in closing, let's look at these six things one more time. This is what our response should be to God's word. We should have an attitude of gratitude because of this incredible gift. We receive the kingdom of God by grace through faith. This is a kingdom and a gospel that cannot be shaken. And we should worship the Lord because of it. We should have a healthy fear of the Lord because of it. And we should acknowledge that God is an all-consuming fire. He never changes. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. Let's not be lunatics and refuse to listen to the word of God. Let's not be ungrateful followers of Jesus. Let's not refuse him speaking or reject his word. One last quote. This hit home for me. This is from Pastor Phillips yet again. He said this, Jesus is a better savior than you are a sinner. Jesus is a better savior than you are a sinner. Therefore, he rests enthroned in his city, his saving work secure in your life. He calls us to rest our hearts in him and with thanksgiving to offer to God the worship of our lives. Jesus is a better savior than you are a sinner. And because of Jesus, God took away my sin. Because of Jesus, God took away your sin. And he, his grace is what leads us to worship him. His grace, his mercy is what motivates us to worship him, to obey him. And my prayer is that we would worship him day in and day out. We would worship him with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our minds, that we would worship him like the angels do. And that we would say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the whole earth is full of his glory. Let's pray. Father, I praise you for your word. We praise you for not hiding the truth of who you are from us. We praise you for revealing yourself to us through your creation, through your word, and through your son, ultimately. God, apart from you, we are an unholy people.
but because of what you've done, Jesus. Because your blood speaks a better word, we can come before you and worship. Because of your grace, because the gift of faith, if we repent and turn from our sin and change our minds from the rebellion that we've lived in, then we can worship you in spirit and in truth as you created us to worship you, all because of the blood of Jesus. I pray that no one in this room would refuse your word tonight or reject or dismiss your gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.